We have an amazing passage to look at in Scripture today. Before we look at it, though, let me pray for us. Father, we are we're grateful to be here, uh, and we're grateful that you are here as well. We need you in every way. Uh, we need your fullness uh, of joy that your presence brings. We need you, Holy Spirit, to guide us, to teach us, to lead us, to strengthen us in our response to you and what you have to teach us. Do all these things, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> it was my beginning of my senior year in high school. Uh, my closest friend, his name is Brent, uh, he was going to the same school I was going to, and uh, that summer, between my junior year and my senior year, I became a believer. And there was some things, there was a lot of things that changed. When I met Jesus, there was things that changed in me uh, that was radical, and I could, I could feel something different in me because of Jesus. But <laughs> there was some things that hadn't changed. And one of those things is I was still using uh, foul language. I was still cursing. Uh, and even though I knew that there was something about it, there was something about it that didn't quite connect with who I was now, but I continued to do it. And uh, I was in a hallway and I was talking to Brent and I was using colorful language and I was speaking to him. And all of a sudden he stops and he looks at me. Uh, and so, uh, matter of fact, right? so not angry anyway, but very matter of fact, he says to me, why do you curse? And it caught me off guard. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming, and I was a little bit embarrassed by it, too, and so I got defensive. Even though I knew he was right, like, I got defensive, and I said something to the effect of, mind your own business, and I walked off. Oh, and then it just, just stuck with me all day long during classes, and at the end of classes, then after school, I go, I find Brent, I'm Brent, I'm sorry, man, like, you were right. You were right in bringing that up. I don't, know, I don't know why I do it. And then he says something that's very significant. He says to me, well, the reason I asked you is, is because it just didn't sound like you. It didn't sound right coming out of your mouth. In other words, who I was and what I was saying didn't match. There was a contradiction, and I knew it. I knew it. What I was doing didn't match with something new inside of me, a, a new reality that I was now a part of. This is exactly what we've been talking about the last few Sundays in the book of Colossians. It starts with who Jesus is and that, that with him we have everything. And then the letter begins to move into who we are then because of Jesus and what he's done in us, that we're not the same after meeting Jesus. Paul says, as followers of Jesus, we have died with the death of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we have been buried with the burial of Jesus. That We have been resurrected with the resurrection of Christ and with that, Christ has filled me and he has filled you. And that my life and your life is hidden now in Christ and my life is never the same after that. I died when he moved in and became, I became something different, a brand new kind of work that God has created. And as believers, we live in a new reality. And because of that new reality, then there is a call to action. See, there's a common theme in the writings of Paul. There's this unfolding of theology that he gives, and then what follows is a call then to live that out. Ephesians 
is a good example. Chapters 1 through 3 is just packed with theology. And then the beginning of chapter 1 starts with, therefore. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Romans is another good example. Chapters 1 through 11 packed with theology, right? Ending with, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in the very next words, at the start of chapter 12, it says, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There is a call to action. There is a response to the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. Colossians, exactly the same. Chapters 1 and 2, what we've been looking at for the past 12 weeks, there's this all-sufficiency in Christ, that when we have Christ, we have everything. It's the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection and the indwelling of his spirit of Christ that has changed us and made us alive, and he is our only hope in becoming more like Jesus. And now Paul begins to change gears. He begins to shift his focus, and he's moving away from theology, and he's moving more into conduct. Okay, we're going to see this then played out for the remaining book of Colossians. We're in chapter 3, starting in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, there it is, Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And right at the, at the very beginning, we find the word therefore. Right? There it is. There's the change. There is the shift the call to action based on the theology that he just gets done spelling out. Therefore, in light of who Christ is, in light of the fullness and the sufficiency of him, in light of the fact that we have died and this new life that we have is not only because of Jesus, this new life is Jesus, then there is a response to that. There's a call to action. And then he says, therefore, put to death what is earthly, in you. And before we get into put to death and the list of things that we're to put to death, let's look at that word earthly. If we read it literally, it says to put to death the members or the limbs which are upon the earth or the on earth things. And notice, right, from last week, there is this contrast, isn't there, between this passage and what we got done looking at last week in verses 1 and 2. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above as opposed to now the on earth things. And he gives us a list of these earthly things so that we know exactly what they are. Evil attitudes, evil practice, sexual immorality, horrible things that our tongues can say. Horrible things that are not in line with the beautiful reality of who we are in Christ. One aspect of this new reality is that we have died to these things. Right? Remember last week, Colossians 3.3, 3, you have died. 
You've died. Colossians 2.20, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 6, 2 through 4, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. We died, and then he raised us up to newness of life. We have been made alive. Christ, who is your life, your life is hidden in Christ. You've been filled with him. You've been raised with him, made alive together with him. That's the reality of who we are. And here's what Paul is saying. You're alive in Christ. You're alive, so stop doing dead things. Live in the reality of who you are and what God has done in you. Practice it. Participate with it. Participate and respond to the reality of what God has done in you by putting to death the things of the earth to resolve yourself, not to allow anything to diminish the reality of who you now are. Don't tolerate anything that's creeping in and and tarnishing or distorting the reality of who you are in Christ. Don't let anything warp it. Don't let anything twist it. That is what sin is. Sin is the twisted. Sin is the disfigured reality of who God is and what he has created. And sin, being itself twisted, begins to twist those who hold on to that sin as well. And you've died to that and made alive and set free from from slavery to that horrible master that is sin. You You don't have to serve that anymore. Why are you trying to resurrect that relationship and be obedient to that when all it does is disfigure? All it does is distort. All it does is is twist and accuse and torture and kill. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So put sin where it belongs in this new life of yours. You put it to death. You put it to death. And we know what Paul doesn't mean when he says this, right? When he says put to death, we know what he doesn't mean. We know it doesn't have anything to do with asceticism or legalism. Anything that we might try to add to Jesus in any way in our own power. This is what Paul has been rallying against, right? So Paul isn't talking about rules. He's not talking about religious responsibility. He's talking about response. Therefore, therefore, a response to Jesus and what he's done supernaturally inside of us. Therefore, this is why we are to set our minds on things above where Christ is. Don't be distracted with human precepts and and human teachings. Don't be distracted with things that have the appearance of wisdom. But all they do is just promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Don't be distracted by legalism or, or secret knowledge or anything that would take your attention or your desire away from the fullness that is yours in Jesus. All these things, all these other things, they have an appearance of wisdom. But Paul warns us that they are of no value, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is the things of this earth. What we're to do about these things is we put them to death. Okay, when I think of putting something to death, I'm thinking about uh, cutting off It's supply lines. As human beings, we have supply lines that we need to keep us alive. Okay, we we have things like air 
that we need supply of. We have things like water, food, uh, reasonable temperature, which I feel like we're uh, pushing the boundary of our supply laws <laughs> lately, at least for this Washingtonian. Sin also has a supply that feeds it, that helps it to foster, that incubates that sin in our lives. See, all too often, uh, we get disappointed, we get discouraged because there is this sin in our life that it feels like we, it's unable for us to resist this thing. But all along, leading up to that sin, we do nothing about all the things that lead us into that sin. All the temptations that go unchecked and allow to survive in our lives leading up to the sin. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, it is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of a temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. James puts it this way. James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, all those things that lead us up to that sin, temptations and lurings and enticing. Man, define those things for what they are. There's nothing good about these things. So be careful with what you watch. Be careful with what you listen to or who you listen to or who you hang out with. Be careful of where you allow your eyes to wander or where you allow your eyes to linger. These are the beginning stages that we are to take notice of and be proactive. Proactive, not lazy, not indifferent, like it doesn't even matter, no big deal, not, definitely not welcoming, proactive and, and choking out the supply lines of those sins in our lives. So these are all the things that are leading up to this sin. Like, what about the actual sin in our lives? What do we do about that sin? Well, what do we do with the nasty weed that's in the garden bed? In where it does not belong, what do we do with that? We pull it out. We tear it out. We tear out the sin. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I think we can agree that Jesus is not talking about actual surgery, right? He's not talking about actually gouging out eyes or cutting off hands. He tells us that sin comes from the heart, the evil within a person. No, we are to cut out and cut off and execute and put to death that which isn't in line with who he is and who we are in Christ. So we put it to death. We put sin to death by responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We put to death sin in our life by confessing our sins to God. We put it to death by confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. We put sin to death in our lives by repentance, by turning away from that sin and turning to God. We put that sin to death in our life by frequently praying for God's strength. God, lead me away from sin. Help me to hate that sin and help me to love you more. We put it to death. We cut it out. We tear it. We gouge it from those things in our life that no longer conform to the shape and the essence of who we are in Jesus. And then Paul gives us a list then of some of those things. 
Now, the list is not an exhaustive one, okay? It's not like every single sin that we are to cut out, and if it's not mentioned in the list, then we don't have to, to, to put it to death. No, but I'll tell you one thing. As we look at this list, this list touches on everything that is wrong with this world. They can be grouped into three different categories. The first one is this, it's sensuality. Verse 5, he says, we're to put to death sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage. He says impurity. The word impurity, it it highlights the, the contamination of character and of relationship from immoral behavior, especially of the sexual kind. He says we're to put to death passion. Okay, this is just a a general term for any passion that would master you, that would be a master over you. But here in the list, most likely because of the context, it refers to uncontrolled sexual urges. He says evil desires, not just desire. We can have a desire for the Lord. We can have a desire for the things of the Lord. No, this is wicked. This is self-serving. Not a desire to love and to serve but to lust and to take. He says covetousness, also translated as greed. It's interesting that coveting is at the end of this list of sexual sins, right? But coveting is not just about material things, is it? To covet means to have an unchecked hunger for physical pleasure of any kind. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, at the very end of the Ten Commandments, it's the tenth one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, any of his possessions at all. And if we've missed anything, then, uh, or anything that is your neighbor's. Why? Because Paul says that the 10th command is linked to the first command. Paul says to covet is idolatry. As one author puts it, all such greed places at the center of one's attention and devotion that which is not God. And we do not have to look very far in the world around us to see the supply lines for this list of sins, do we? We are inundated by sexual temptations. If we go home in the evening, just as one example, if we go home in the evening, it's estimated that the amount of sexual stimulus and innuendos and sexually explicit things in one evening that we could watch on television is more than our grandparents watched in their entire lifetime. That doesn't even scratch the surface. It doesn't even begin to, to take into account the internet, apps on our phones, the number of shows to choose from that are rated R or, or mature or even PG-13 for crying out loud that we choose on Netflix, on Amazon. There's emails, there's packages, there's trips to Safeway. There's even, there's news articles. The second category is evil attitudes, verse 8. He says, we need to put to death anger. Anger is smoldering or or seething hatred. And then rage. Rage is a release of that anger. It's it's anger that boils over. We see it when someone has a a quick temper or, or a short fuse. We're put to death malice. Malice. Malice is a gross one. It's a desire to do evil or to have evil intent to cause hurt in any way. The third group is evil speech. We're to kill anything to do with slander. And if malice is a desire to do evil or to hurt, then slander takes malice and puts words to it. 
The Greek word for slander is blasphemia. Right? Obviously, we get the word blasphemy. Speech that dishonors God himself or speech that reviles a human being who's made in God's image. He says filthy language, filthy, dirty, any words that are foul or abusive in any way. It's described as filthy because with these types of words, they bring contamination to both the person who speaks it and the person who listens to it and entertains it. And then one of the most dangerous and disgusting forms of evil speech is deception. Paul says, don't lie. Don't lie to each other. Don't fall into the temptation of bending the truth to make things appear better for you in any way. James gives a very descriptive picture of evil words. James chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says, In the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and itself set on fire by hell. And then picking up in verse 9, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. Why? Because that is not who we are. In these, Paul says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is how you used to live because this is who you used to be. But now you must put them all away. Take them off. Put them behind you. Take them out of your mouth and throw them away. Put off the old self. The idea is like taking off old, nasty, stinky clothes. Take those things off. It's not you anymore. And put on everything that looks like the new self, that looks like the things that are above where Christ is. In nature, a caterpillar will make a pretty remarkable transformation, doesn't it? There is a metamorphosis that occurs. The caterpillar gets inside of its cocoon and then does its thing, whatever it does. And then like science fiction, it comes out and it becomes this butterfly. This is something that is completely different creature, radically different. And the obvious difference between the caterpillar and the butterfly, of course, is the wings. The caterpillar doesn't have wings. The butterfly does. It's able to, to fly and not just crawl around. But there's other significant differences too. Caterpillars have six very small eyes and they only detect a little bit of light and they only see in black and white. But a butterfly has these two big compound eyes on either side of its head. There's up to 17,000 different photoreceptors that it has. Each photoreceptor has its own cornea, has its own lens. And so the butterfly can see in multiple directions at one time and not in black and white up to 17 or I think 15 different photoreceptors. Just as a contrast, humans have three, and so they see in this vivid color. Caterpillars have these tiny little antennae that that they just use it to like barely just find food. Man, the butterfly, they have these long, radically different uh, antenna that that helps them to smell and helps them with with balance. It helps them with real technical things too, uh, like being able to, to uh, navigate. They're even actually, they, they can even tell time using their antenna somehow. 
They eat different things, right? They have a different diet. A caterpillar uh, eats mostly leaves and small bugs like aphids. Butterfly feeds mostly on nectar from flowers. And when we put our faith in Jesus, there is an instant metamorphosis. The caterpillar version of us ceases to exist. And because of Jesus, we are changed radically on the inside. We become a completely different creature altogether. And Paul has been saying in Colossians, let me remind you of who you have as your Lord and Savior. Let me remind you of his all-sufficiency for everything that you need. Let me remind you of his all-sufficient work on the cross and the resurrection and the all-sufficient grace of God that by faith when we have Jesus, we become something new. The old is gone. It is dead. And in its place, there is newness. There is metamorphosis. So, things like sexual impurity, anger, Malice, coveting, lies, in these you once walked like a caterpillar. But you have changed. There's been a metamorphosis. So stop doing caterpillar things. Put those things to death because sin is not who we are anymore. So don't go back to the old diet of leaves and aphids. God has given you nectar to drink. You have amazing eyes to be able to see this world for what it is and to see God in your life and to, and to know what this life is all about. Don't use your eyes to look at caterpillar-type things and in caterpillar-type ways. You have incredible antenna. You have wings. You've got wings. You have a different means of travel. You have a different means of navigation. Don't go back to crawling. Don't go back to moving in the direction of caterpillar-type things. You have an unsurpassed beauty because of what Jesus has done. Don't diminish it. Do not taint that beauty by putting back on caterpillar-type things. See, this clothing metaphor that Paul is using here, this is so much more than God just giving us a new set of clothes. It's more than God just giving us a new wardrobe or a new closet. The caterpillar doesn't become a butterfly by putting on butterfly clothes. This is about metamorphosis. This is about moving out of a house altogether into a new house with a new family. And in that new house, there is a new wardrobe that we can wear. And in this new family, there are new life Rules that come with it, a new way of life altogether that is available to us, that is in line with the wings and the eyes and the change that he has created in us and in our family. Which brings us to the last point. We put to death sin because sin is not who we are, and we put to sin, we put to death sin because sin is not where we belong. Verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I love how he says at the start of verse 11, it says, here. Where? Here, in this new house. Here, in this new family. See, generally we think of labeling as a bad thing. And when it comes to human beings labeling other human beings, that is absolutely true. Like when it, <laughs> humans label other humans these really horrible, ugly things because one of the reasons is that we base our labels on only outward appearances. That's like all we see, Gentile, 
Jew, barbarian, slave. I could argue, though, that labeling one another can be a good thing as long as it is an accurate label. You think about it. Our clothes are labeled. It helps us to identify how to care for them and clean them and and dry them and iron them. Our, our, Our food is labeled, and it helps with knowing what the ingredients are and calories and important information about things like allergies that can actually save lives. In my house, we have these plastic tubs, these, con- these containers that, that hold all the, the dry foods like, uh, like sugar and flour and things like that. These things are labeled. That's a good thing for bacon. We don't want to get these things all, all mixed up. Here. Here in this new family. Here in this church at Gateway, there is no Gentile and Jew. In this new family, God has done away with color, of nationality, of race. Circumcised or uncircumcised, this new family, God has done away with any labels of religious practice that were only a shadow of things to come. Barbarians or Scythian. Barbarian was a, a word used by the Greeks for anyone that didn't know their language. And because of that, those people were labeled and they were looked down upon. They were considered to be uncivilized. They were thought to lack culture. And someone from Scythia would be considered the most extreme example of a barbarian. I think we have modern day equivalents of those words, don't we? See, in this new family that he has done away with any cultural Labeling. There is no slave or free labels either, which means that God has done away with any social barriers and he has brought all of these differences together in one family. God has brought newness of life to me and he has brought newness of life to you and what he did in me and what he did in you, he did in all who are followers of Jesus. We belong to Jesus and because of that we belong to each other. And all these inaccurate exterior labels that humans create, they're distinguished. They are disintegrated when it comes to what Jesus has created here. And because of him, then we're able to see each other accurately. We were able to label each other accurately. Sister, brother, sister, sister, brother. So just like clothes, these labels from God that we can apply to one another, they remind us how to care for one another. And when I see you, I'm reminded that you have the spirit of the living God in you, that you are filled up with Jesus. This is why Paul says Christ is all and in all by faith in Jesus, then all the Gentiles and Jews are filled with Jesus. And it's the same for the barbarians. And it's the same for the slaves. And it's the same for the free, left and right, black and white, old and young, baby boomers or millennials, vaccined or not in this new family. Jesus is in all. So be careful how you care for one another. Because what you say to them, you say to Jesus. What you think of them, you think of Jesus. What you do to them, how you look at them. So we put to death and we put off the things of the caterpillar in order to be and to act and to talk and to look more like the beautiful creation God has made us to be and the beautiful thing 
that we belong to. What does that look like, though? Practically, what does it look like? When we get up and we talk with each other, when we, when we leave these doors and inevitably we feel the pull to caterpillar type of things, what does it look like in practice to put to death these things in our life? For the last three weeks, uh, we've been replacing a, a retaining wall in our backyard. And uh, I was kind of putting it off and putting it off just because it looked like a lot of work. And uh, so I finally got out there and I did the first shovel, right? And uh, it probably wasn't like two minutes into me shoveling out there when Max, my, my son, he's, he's seven years old, he comes running out there and he's like, Dad, I want to help. I was like, oh, cool, bud. You know, here's a shovel and let's, let's start digging. This is what, this is what the plan is. We've got to dig all this back and we remove this retaining wall. And, uh, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm in. So we're digging for like 20 minutes. And uh, <laughs> it's hot. And it is hard work. And I, pretty soon I take a break. I'm leaning on my shovel. And I'm looking, right? Like I said, we do. We look at like the amount of work that we have to do and all the, all the, like, how depth, the depth that we have to dig out. And I'm like, <laughs> I tell Max, Bub, man, we got our work cut out for us. This is a lot of work. And he looks, and he looks at me. And he says, well, don't worry, Dad. I won't quit on you. It was one of the greatest things that he's ever said to me. Don't worry, Dad. I won't quit on you. And so 15 minutes goes by, right? Oh, I'm hot and I'm tired. And I tell him, hey, I have a good idea. Go in, take five minutes, and get us some water and bring it out to us. He's like, okay. So he does that. And he starts working again. And then pretty soon he's like, my, my arms are getting tired, right? This shovel's getting heavy. Oh, I have a different shovel. Right? I, I can help you with that. And here's, here's a lighter one. So he continues t- to work. And, and right? like he, his digging technique is terrible. It's horrible. And so I'm telling him, like, no, bud, like, no, hold it this way. Oh, and try digging over here where it's softer. This, this will help you so you, you don't quit. He's like, yeah, yeah. Right? And then he, he hits me in the head with the handle. He hits me in the shin with the, the metal part. Uh, he's like, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. And I tell him, it's okay. It's going to take a lot more than that for me not to quit on you. Two full days of digging, and he didn't quit. So I go inside, I wash up, and I'm reflecting on what he said and the fact that he didn't. And the more I think about it, the more I start realizing that what Max really needed in order for him not to quit on me is me. He needed me there. He needed my expertise. He needed my strength. He needed my tools. He needed my encouragement, my reminders, my my conversation, my perspective about things. See, God calls us to obedience. God calls us to put to death earthly things in our life like sin. Why? Because he needs us? No. He calls us to obedience and put to death the things of sin in our life because he knows that we need him. We need him. We need his trueness. We, we need his, his perfect baseline of who he is, the fullness of his presence, the perfection of his commands. We need the purity, the, the hope of his promises. We need him so that we don't quit on him. We need him to be more like him. We need eyes on him to be, and to be walking with him so that we can put to death the things that are not like him and not like who he's made us to be. Putting to death means to go to God frequently and tell him that we need him, 
Ask him, help me hate sin. Help me to, to draw me deeper into love with you. It means confessing our sin and praying for help with repentance and applying that to our lives. So we tell him, we talk with him. You can, you can talk to him right now and tell him, I won't quit on you and I know, here he is, <laughs> he's digging away, and I know that what I need is you for that. Oh, that's the first layer. There he goes. He's still working. I won't quit on you. So we go to God and we tell him that. We tell him, I know that I need you for this. And I need you to bring people into my life that can help me, to sharpen me, to hold me accountable, right? To walk alongside of me, to read with me, to pray with me. Help me to respond to your love and your faithfulness. Empower me, encourage me through your spirit not to quit and to not stop living according to the reality of who I am and what you've created me since before the foundations of this earth was established. Help me to put to death the things in my life like sexual impurity, greediness, lies. Help me to put these things to death and lay them aside with the corpse that used to be me. I have died to these things. So God helped to identify then the source of these things in my life, the roots of these things, and, and help me to strangle and tear them out because that's not me anymore. That's not who I am. That's not who we are and what we belong to. So help me to love what I belong to. Help me to refuse to allow anything to destroy the work for that which Christ has died. Help me to reject, put to death anything that would tear down, that would take from, to act selfishly toward those who Christ now dwells in. And as we walk out those doors and, and we feel the pull to caterpillar type things, sexual immorality, evil attitudes, evil speech, first go to God and tell him, I won't quit on you. And I need you to help me put these things to death. And then be reminded of who we are and what we belong to so that we can say to sin, no. No. We can do that. We're not slaves to it anymore. We can say no and we can tell it, that's not who I am and that's not where I belong. That's not who I am and that's not where I belong. And then ask God to renew that knowledge in us every single day. Father, that is our prayer. We want to put to death the things that don't look like you and don't look like the things that you have made us to be. We want what you have done on the inside to begin to ooze out of us, to, for the exterior to reflect the inner. Father, we come to you because we need you. We need you. Oh, Spirit, we need you for us to become more like Jesus. And we welcome that in our life. We know that we need it. And so, therefore, we, we pray, help us to be more like you and, and, and remove temptation from us. Uh, help us and, and deliver us from the evil one. All these things that we see in leading up to sin, we, we pray that you help identify these things in our lives so that, that in you help strengthen us, give us endurance and encouragement to begin to strangle those things out of our life and say no to those things because that's not who we are. We pray for sin in our life, you convict us of these sins and we pray for the strength and the encouragement to be able to tear these things out of our lives and put them to death and repent of them, turn away from this sin and turn to you and be healed. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.